This is Jason Miller. On this episode of Jazz Cast from the Vault, jazz artist interviews from the KBOU archives, my 2008 interview with singer-songwriter J.D. Souther. And I'm very pleased to welcome to Afternoon Jazz today singer-songwriter J.D. Souther, a highly sought-after songwriter and session man who released three critically acclaimed solo albums in the 1970s and wrote countless hits for artists such as the Eagles, pinning such hits as Heartache Tonight, Victim of Love, New Kid in Town, and Best of My Love for that group, as well as Linda Ronstadt classics Faithless Love, Simple Man, Simple Dream, and Prisoner in Disguise, and of course his solo hit, You're Only Lonely, and also some fine recordings with James Taylor. In 1985, after countless hit records and Grammy nominations, American Music Awards, and Gold and Platinum albums, J.D. Souther decided to walk away from his solo career. After relocating to Nashville, Souther wrote for and with artists as diverse as India Ari, Jimmy Buffett, Glenn Campbell, Joe Cocker, Crosby, Stills, and Nash, The Dixie Chicks, Don Henley, Roy Arbison, Brian Wilson, Trisha Yearwood, Warren Zevon, and the list goes on and on. All right. Well, the first thing I, I just want to I want to welcome you to um, our afternoon jazz show here on KBLU. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be on your station. Oh, thank you so much. And uh, I wish you guys were half a million watts. <laughs> we wish we were too. If we could just blast <laughs> into, if we could blast into Houston, we'd be doing well. Exactly. We, uh, well, you're you're, you're from uh, you grew up in Texas, right? I grew up in in the Panhandle, yeah, Amarillo. First question uh, that I had for you. Was uh, I just I really wanted to um, just ask you about uh, your uh, interest in jazz? It, this goes back to to when you first started to play music. Yeah, well, I started actually. I started well, yeah, actually before. I started playing music in the um, fourth grade. I started playing violin, and um, it looked like a steep learning curve <laughs> to me. Although it's kind of precocious, so play. The first thing I ever played in public was a Mozart Gavotte. It was okay, but I was really falling in love with my with jazz. My my father had been a big band singer, and we had always had that music in the house, and we'd always had songwriter music. So when I was a little kid, I I knew all the Gershwin tunes and Cole Porter tunes and Harold Arlen tunes and Rodgers and Hart, Roger and Hammerstein, and uh, as well as as by, by the time I was. Uh, yeah, by the time I was that age, I knew I knew all that book pretty well. Right. But I wanted to play jazz. I wanted to play tenor, but it was so big for me. I was a pretty small kid then, mm-hmm. so I st- started playing clarinet the next year. Okay. Played clarinet for a couple of years and finally grew into where I could manage a tenor pretty well. And I was cranking along on that, and then all of a sudden I discovered drums. It was, uh, that was it for me. It sealed the deal. Yeah. I was still playing drums when I moved to California in 1960 late 67 or 68 I just didn't didn't know anybody there so I couldn't get any work as a jazz drummer and somebody left uh, although I played in a few blues bands because they were younger and it was, it was sort of easier it was an easier entrance and and then somebody left an acoustic guitar in my apartment which I had never even held I never even held a guitar until I was 22 I think and I just started noodling around with it there was a lot of fascination in, in Southern California at that time about this, what seemed to be a sort of a new mixture of uh, country music and rock and roll music. And uh, it seemed like a fine place to sort of lead my, a certain kind of poetry into it. It's not, I'd always written sort of blank verse, which doesn't lend itself to songs so well. But I just got fascinated with this hunk of wood that I couldn't play. 
and started writing songs, and I guess you know what happened after that. Yeah. Well, were, were amongst the, the group of, of fine songwriters and artists you were around, were, were you the one that brought um, kind of a, a jazz interest or jazz background in, into, into uh, that community? Yeah, I was, I was the one with the kinky changes. Okay. <laughs> I understand. Uh-huh. Were, were you interested in, uh, in more in the instrumentalist, instrumental jazz artists than, than the vocalist at, at that point in time? With the exception of two people, uh, yeah, actually when I was a kid, yeah, I was like most jazz kids, I was real snobby, I didn't think singers amounted to much. Right. But uh, I had heard Sinatra all my life, and I, he was undeniably a master, a master jazz singer, and my dad was a huge uh, Mel Torme and Lambert Hendricks and Ross fan, and then I heard Ray Charles, and once again, my life completely changed, I think Ray Charles is the absolute most important musician in America in the late 20th century. I think he just wrote the book on so many different aspects of music. You know, his, nobody sings better. He taught everybody how to play that weird piano lick, that, da, 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 that gospel lick that everyone tries to play. Yeah. You can copy his records exactly, and it still doesn't sound the same. He wrote great charts. He hired great guys to write charts. He wrote songs. He just uh, he just had a feel for music that's un- unparalleled, and he was sort of the I don't know. He was the soundtrack to my emotional life from the time I was God. I don't know. I've got all the albums. I've got even the ones on Specialty Records where he sounds like Nat Cole, and yeah. I've got all the instrumental albums. So he was kind of my shining light until I was about well, he still is actually. But then some other stuff happened. Uh, I got a new stereo system and the Take 5 album the same day. And I set it up on the floor and I listened to Brubeck for hours. And it just was the killingest album. It was just... And also, if you remember, Take 5 was actually a hit. It sounds impossible given the current climate of music. Yeah, but, know. you know, an instrumental in 5-4 time with an AM hit radio. <laughs> oh, yeah. An AM radio hit. And then I met John Morello the next... Uh, summer, my dad had a little music store, and, went, and we went to the NAMM show in Chicago, and Morello had been there giving a drum clinic, and uh, I, I just, um, I was stuck then, I was like, yeah, this is this is the music I want to play, but I, I wasn't really singing then, I sang some in a band I was in, because they, the singer wasn't very good, and I knew all the blues songs, so I'd get my friends, in order to sing, I'd get my friends to come up and request songs that the lead singer didn't know. <laughs> and then I could pull my microphone back around to the drums and I'd sing Stormy Monday Blues or Turn On Your Love Light or something like that. Yeah. I really wasn't a singer until I started writing. I know it, just, it seemed pretty pretty natural and I don't know. The music I like is, I, I guess it, people use the word eclectic all the time. I'm not sure what that means really because I kind of... I kind of think Duke Ellington was right. I think there's just two kinds of music, good music and bad music. I don't care what it is. And I pretty much listen to the same records every time I go into the studio. I'm always listening to George Jones and Miles Davis. And I think for just for clarity, do you know what I mean? Yeah. Those two guys, that they just had such a clear vision, and also both of their instruments are so unaffected and almost even uninflected they, they, they just they just sing and play what they sing and play without any sort of compromise or something and I, I just always found both their records I don't know if that's what I was listening to every time but 
I can tell you before um, the first album that I made in 72 and before this album, I listened to a lot of George Jones and a lot of Miles Davis. And the album that you, that you mentioned, Silver Blue, which is on Black Rose album, I called Stanley Clark to come and play on that because I'd seen him play. And I just went, man, that's, that's the best melody bass playing. That's the best yeah. bass playing I've ever seen. I wonder if this guy would come play on my record. So I asked my producer, Peter Asher, and he said, I don't know, call him. He's a musician, you know. God, I'm sure he's never heard of me. It's a little honky white kid that's known for writing Eagle songs. So he called me and said, sure, when you want me, I'll be there. Let's play the song. Let's play the song in the set real quick. All right. uh, Silver Blue, uh, Black Rose. J.D. Souther's my guest today on Afternoon Jazz. And the song Silver Blue, going back to 1976 with that one from J.D. Souther's album Black Rose, featuring Stanley Clark, featuring Stanley Clark on string bass on that one. And J.D. Souther is my guest today on Afternoon Jazz. We're talking about his new jazz album called If the World Was You. When you were recording at that time, were there other jazz elements that you wanted to work in? Every record is its own voyage, and that one had a lot of good jazz players. Donald Byrd played on that record. Right. And uh, Johnny Guerra and Chuck DeMonico. And I can't remember whether I'd met Sanborn yet or not then, but Charlie Veal played a stunning viola solo on something. I actually managed to get Lowell George and Donald Byrd on the same track. <laughs> And and they just fed each other beautifully. And I like doing that 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 album. I put I like putting different kinds of players together and see what happens. Sure. You so, know, and Silver Blue is a good example. I played that song with a lot of good musicians. So I sort of collect good performances of it. I was playing uh, Benefit here a couple of years ago, and Chris Steele, you know, this fabulous mandolin player who can play anything. And he came up and I think his group was called Nickel Creek, something like that. Yeah, but he's a fantastic jazz player. He's, he's like Bela Fleck. He's just instrument, no bounds. He yeah. can play any kind of music on that instrument. So I just threw it at him. We were sitting on a stage doing a round, and I said, Dave, hey, let's, uh, let's play a tune with me. He goes, great, what is it? And I said, uh, Silver Blue. And he goes, oh, I don't know if I know it. I said, well, just follow along. And I gave him a whole chorus. You know, he played the whole 32 bars perfectly, brilliantly. I, I just I just like throwing players together and see what happens. Now, granted, when you do an album, any kind of jazz music requires just as much structure as it does improvisation, unless you're just going for free jazz. I mean, you know, we spend a lot of time smoking dope and listening to that Ornette Coleman album, the first free jazz album. But by and large, you want structure. You want guys who are thorough technicians that have the confidence that Nothing is really difficult for them to play. They just have, they might not have played it yet. That doesn't mean it's hard. It just means they haven't played it yet. And uh, give them the structure and then give them the space and let them go. And it's amazing how often they play exactly what you want to hear. <laughs> On the new album, you can really tell that. You can tell that the song forms there and then they have the, the place to converse in the way that they want to. 
it's a live album. That's six guys in one room, okay. including a singer. And we we had played, we rehearsed for a month and written charts and stuff. And, and then we'd done about a month of gigs. We had a residency at a little club here called The Basement. And we played there twice a week. And after a month, we thought we were ready to do, we thought we were ready to go in. So we got a remote truck uh, in the alley and we cut, we played two sets on a Friday night. And we recorded them both and we just felt ready. We I don't, I've never even listened to those sets. We just went in the next week into Blackbird into this wonderful room that George Massenberg built and spent uh, a week in there and then came back another for another long weekend because we didn't have Bailiff Fleck the first time and we didn't quite have one of the songs and quite nail one of the songs. So that's that's pretty much that's real old school album making, you know, actual rehearsals and then gigs <laughs> and then playing it. Yeah, it is, and uh, it? it is, and it? yeah, no, no overdubs, right? Yeah, I understand. We tried to fix a few things, but man, when you got eighteen open microphones in one room, <laughs> it's bleed. Woo! Uh, yeah, there's plenty of bleed. Engineers' yeah, nightmare ambient on that. Sound is flying <laughs> every place. So, you know, now and then we could do something in Pro Tools, like we, you know, there was one. I think there was a bass string that was a little out on one song. Uh, rather than tune it, we just we just took the same bass note from another take and dropped it in. And we had one, one place where this, at the end of a, I think it's at, uh, it's, it's in uh, Brown, Osaka Story, which is really breakneck speed and a lot of playing and a lot of uh, things just barely coming out, people going way out on the solos and coming back. And we just, we just got back in on one and one that somebody was a little bit ahead and I just thought it, compromise the pocket a little bit because most of the guys in that band play behind the right. piano player is very new orleans and kind of fat fingered new orleans guy he's always way on the back of the beat so we just uh you know just lifted the note from somewhere else and moved it back a little bit and but as far as fixing stuff we did a, a really great engineer named richie biggs and i worked with the pro tools stuff for a couple of weeks before we mixed and mixed and we dropped in a couple of vocal lines but by and large you just couldn't do it there was too much there was too much of everybody in everybody else's mic, and you know it was frustrating at first if you're used to recording the old-fashioned way. But in the end, it sort of gave the album its sound, you know. Sure, yeah, it, yeah, it does. I mean, and I'm sure a lot of these jazz players, I'm sure they've a lot of the records that they've been associated with have been in the room like that, so they can you know yeah. capture. Although the they're getting unit. pretty slick at dropping stuff in too. I can remember 25 years ago watching somebody work on a classical piano record on tape. And they just were slicing bits of different takes together. <laughs> yeah. Everybody yeah. wants their record to be good. You just you just have to have some overview about what what constitutes a mistake and what constitutes just playing, just music, just a great snapshot of what happened right then. Some things you just gotta let go, you know. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I kind of wanted to know what what would where would you like to go first first on on the album here and during the program. Hmm. I don't know. How much time you got? Uh, we've got we've got a bit. I was uh, we've got a bit of time. Yeah. I love Journey Down the Nile. That's yeah. Me too. That's getting played on the jazz stations around here. If you want to play the just the first half of the Secret Handshake, it's really just the same song twice. We were just having <laughs> so much fun, we played it again. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a nice way to close the album with the 13 minute track. You gotta you gotta have that on there if you're gonna have the guys yeah. really playing. Yeah. <laughs> and that's by the way, that's the only time we ever play that. Oh really? That was a no rehearsal. I just I had this poem that I'd written a long time ago, and I had kind of an idea for the riff, and you know, I haven't really changed it. There's a little 
a little bit of uh, there's, a, there's, a, mo- there's a, a move that goes to the five and the four and back to the one, but it's it's really just that little riff. It's kind of like the riff in, in uh, all blues. It just stays the same. Sure. And people work off of that. And uh, I just you can hear a lot of talking in that track because we're talking to each other. And there wasn't really any way to get it out. And you can hear me talking to the piano player, and you hear you can hear him talking to the bass player. And we just kept playing it, and we finished and listened to it a few times, and we just said, "Wow, we're done. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we wanted to go." And and Jeff said, "Man, that's, that's the reason you start playing music to begin with. Is so you get to do something like that." So I thought, "Well, we'll put this to bed. That's a good note to go go to sleep on." <laughs> well, let, why don't why don't we start uh, with Journey Down the Nile? Why mix into a little secret handshake here on the program? Then, cool. uh, Journey on the Nile, um, it's it's like a Latinized rhythm. Uh, what what exact rhythm is that kind of that feel to it? Um, what is it called? It's, just, uh, it's a Cuban. Yeah, yeah, a Cuban kind of beat to it. So yeah. there's a particular word for that kind of descending uh, bass line. I'll right. Be, I can't think of what it is. Right. Well, it it works and it grooves along, and uh, we'll begin the first set uh, with it here on Afternoon Jazz. JD Souther is my guest. If the world was you is the album, and the first song we're gonna play is uh, Journey Down the Nile here on Afternoon Jazz. She had the golden eyes of Egypt. She had a veil across her smile. J.D. Souther from his album, If the World Was You. J.D. is my guest today on Afternoon Jazz. And of course, since it's a jazz program, I can uh, soon play the entire 13-minute song because you just got that kind of freedom on, All right. on, on the thing. So, you know, uh, sometime I'll just play a, a half a side of In a Silent Way by Miles Davis, you know, the whole like 19 yes. minutes of, of something on the program. So, <laughs> so. I just listened to that the other day. I was, I was, I was telling somebody about it, and they had heard... There are two versions. Well, there's a Zawinul version of it, too, and I think there's a Weather Report version and then Miles' version of In a Silent Way. Am I correct on that? Yeah, there was a Zawinul version. There's one that he recorded just a couple of years ago before he died, too. And they're both just they're both just killing, but I was trying to turn somebody on to Joe Zawinul, and I played him Country Preacher oh, sure. from when he was in Cannonball's band and uh, some other stuff, and I said, but you got to hear you got to hear um, his version of uh, In a Silent Way. Couldn't find it. Played Miles' version, and we just all went into a complete trance. Made the evening perfect. <laughs> and there's two of these people out of these four are not really... I would say they're these kind of jazz fans. They're the kind of jazz fans that they have Kind of Blue, and they have Sketch to Spain, right. and they have the Coltrane Ballad album. They don't have a, a, an intensive history with jazz, and they don't go real deep into the catalog. But boy, in a silent way, just got them. They were, they were frozen with delight. There's another show here, a uh, host on the station called The Space Capsule, which features a lot of jazz music out of the box, and uh, recently did two weeks of Miles Davis from the 80s, and he was still an innovative in that decade, really pushing the boundaries of music, just like he was in the 70s with the albums like uh, Live Evil and On the Corner and Pangea and such. I mean, he was just always pushing the boundaries. It's a question of our histories, you know. I, I remember having some resistance to On the Corner, but the kids that I play with now, that was almost their introduction to Miles. Interestingly enough, so that's huh? where they it's came on to him, time. because for them, that's where he became relevant. I, you know, to me, I was like, I heard Birth of the Cool and went, yeah. the world has just turned on its axis. But that was before 
their time. So they kind of, you know, on the corner and the stuff that follows that. Well, bitches brew. Everybody loves bitches sure. brew. Although I, I had a resistance to that too. I wanted, I wanted the, I wanted the softer, cooler, less frenetic mild. Even even though I'd seen him and Tony Williams and Ron, I'd seen that band a couple times, and they they were they were madmen. You know, they cooked up a storm. But that with McLaughlin on guitar and all that stuff, and it seemed. Uh, it seemed so busy and so noisy, and it seemed to have, I don't know, to me, my first re- response was, oh, I compromised with this rock and roll thing. And then I got into it, and I thought, well, why not? I love rock and roll, you know? And Miles did I it think, his own way. I mean, Yeah, he did know, it totally his own way. And, you know, I'm, and then I'd, I'd see him on the West Coast, I'd hear him talk or go see a gig or something, and I'd say, well, of course he's a Hendrix fan. I'm a Hendrix fan. Why shouldn't he be inc- incorporating that into what he does? And, um, you know, I'm pretty much at ease with all of it. Like I said, it's either good music or bad music. And then Miles kind of came full circle with that last album that he made at Montreux with Quincy Jones, playing a lot of those selections from when he was with Gil Evans in the 50s and uh, other things like that. Yeah, I know. Well, you know, that was, that was also, uh, I think... That was something that that Quincy really wanted him to do. I don't, I don't, I know Quincy, but I don't know what the story is that led to that. You probably know it better than mm, me. I don't know how he got back. I don't think sure. it was Miles' idea, and I think in the end he just went, "Yeah, why not?" You know, yeah, why not? Yeah. It was great music, and it's a part of the world where, you know, artists like me are revered and appreciated for what they do, not for what they used to be. And I, I can do it there and feel safe and feel like it's I'm just playing my music, you know. Sure. And of course, Quincy was elated about it. You know, he was wow. Yeah. I get to conduct all this Gil Evans <laughs> stuff. It's fantastic. It's one of my favorite albums. I always, when people uh, that that I'm turning, if I'm turning somebody on to Miles Davis, most people I know, they've already heard kind of blue, and most of them have got sketches of Spain because they think it's like a good, you know, album for seducing girls. But not everybody knows, you know, My Ship or Maze of Cadiz or stuff that's on that album or better still Fieldy Kilimanjaro that great album that's got all the girls names on it you know very few people know that album outside the jazz world and it's just killing it's just you know absolutely beautiful I played uh, when I was playing the stuff from my new album the rehearsal tapes from my dad my dad died before I made the album but he heard the rehearsal tapes and and, you know as an old jazzer he was just tears in his eyes you know just absolutely elated that I managed to swing the circle back around to doing this stuff. But if I can, yeah. And I also played him uh, Mabry from Fieldy Kilimanjaro. Right. And I never heard that before. And I said, actually, you probably did during the time when I was going to see those guys. But I don't think you were... Maybe that was a bit busy or a bit uh, stretched out or it wasn't really busy, but maybe you just weren't ready to hear it then. He went, wow, that's fantastic you know I said yeah well that's music yeah yeah and he said uh, good luck with your stuff because you're going to catch some all those people that think you're the architect of the Southern California country rock (laughs) my dad always thought was pretty funny he said you know they're going to be slow to want to pick this up and and the jazz stations are going to be even slower because they're going to you know associate you with the Eagles and they're not going to want that I said, well, we'll see, man. This is 
this is what I'm going to play from now on for a while. It's been heading that way for a long time, and we'll see. And uh, I, if if we can wrangle this whole two hours of music into a a good set, I think in the spring we're going to put out a another limited edition, a big live live uh, double disc vinyl of it. Because I've been putting, you know, this album is out in vinyl too, and it just sounds wonderful. We mastered it for vinyl, and it's got some extra music on it. And plus, if you love records, it's just you know, it's big enough to see. <laughs> yeah, and, and vinyl. A lot of people are putting out vinyl right now too, and of course they that's are. a wonderful thing. Well, there's the other thing that's absolutely irreducible too, which is that it sounds better. Yeah. You know, it's warm and fat, and doesn't have all those screechy upper mids and at the expense of mid-range and bottom. I, I just love it. I mean, I've still got all six or 7,000 of my records, but I bet I've got two dozen new vinyls also, some of them by my friends, some of them jazz records, some of them classical records, some of them just a sort of audiophile quality redos of previous records. You know, ours is, you know, the high price spread. It's 180-gram vinyl and it's uh, it's a beautiful product, and I think we're going to keep doing it. No, it's very cool keeping vinyl alive. We still uh, use the turntables here at uh, KVOU. What song from the album would you like to roll out of the interview with? Oh, well, if you want to do some out-of-the-box playing, do uh, play uh, Brown. Okay, yeah, <laughs> exactly. That's the one I, I was going to say that one. The, yeah, very cool. Well, um, yeah, we'll, we'll play it on out of uh, the interview, and... Uh, I appreciate uh, your time here on the program talking oh, man, about it. Oh, man, my pleasure. And, uh, J.D., I, I really uh, I hope the best for the record as far as being able to get it out there. And keep me posted on any tours or when the live version of the album comes out. All right, man. My pleasure. Thanks so much. Take care, J.D. Okay, buddy. You too. And again, my guest today on the program, J.D. Saller. If the World Was You is the name of his new album. And we're going to play next Brown, parenthesis, Osaka Story, here on Afternoon Jazz. KVLU. One, two, three.